0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be taking a look back on 2019 and getting a glimpse of the future of digital transformation and financial services. Automation and digital technology aimed at improving financial services continues to impact the banking ecosystem from mobile payments to digital lending and budgetary services fintech and big tech providers are revolutionizing how consumers and businesses handle their finances. These changes are happening faster than ever before and will never happen this slowly again. To get a perspective on the past and future of fintech applications and their impact on traditional banking, I'm joined today by my very good friend, Ron Shevlin. Ron is not only one of the foremost authorities on what is happening in the banking industry, he is also a personal mentor and one of the people who was most responsible for my professional transformation a decade ago. Ron is the Managing Director of FinTech Research at Cornerstone Advisors, author of the book Smarter Bank, and senior contributor on Forbes with his weekly FinTech Snark Tank articles. Ron is ranked among the top fintech influencers globally and is a frequent keynote speaker at banking and fintech industry events. So, Ron, it's great to have you on the show today. You know, we go back a long ways, as I said in the intro, that the reality is we go back more than a decade and you were actually a key player in me doing what I'm doing today, which is writing and speaking and doing reports and all that. And uh, you're still, in my mind, the best at all those categories. I really, I follow you quite a bit. But, you know, I I see that, you know, we're coming up on, I think, a year of you contributing to Forbes. And it looks like you just got upgraded to being a senior contributor to Forbes. Is that true?
1: Uh, that is true. It was about a year ago. I got an email from Forbes and they said, hey, how would you like to be a uh, Forbes contributor? That took me all of about a microsecond to make that decision and uh, published my first post. I think it was January 2nd on um, why Robinhood's uh, checking account was doomed to fail. And we are now at December. Well, mid-December of 2019, I'm coming up on about 63, 64 posts. And, yeah, I got an email just the other day from uh, the uh, editor of the fintech section who said that uh, great news, you're being promoted to senior contributor. I then
0: went and told my wife, who immediately asked, how does Forbes know how old you are? <laughs> That's great. And the good news is it's huge bump in salary from them, I'm sure. No, zero bump yeah. In salary.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there right. is – well, let's be real. There is no salary. Reality is, yeah, they actually do get paid for this. But, uh, you know, that basically pays for a dinner out every month. So I do not do this directly for the money for sure. I do it for the uh, exposure. And, you know, I have to say, Jim, it has been amazing exposure during the course of the year – And uh, definitely will keep posting as much as I can there.
0: Well, and and it's great because I remember at the very beginning us talking about the whole issue of continuous content and need to keep a, a cadence and a continuous flow of articles, but on the same day, same time, and it's great. Every Monday, I know I can go to your the Forbes site, look at your uh, FinTech Shark Tank posts, and it's always thought-provoking. As you know, we talk quite a bit about the fact that, you know, sometimes some of them uh, draw more views than we thought and sometimes less. I think Robinhood is still your number one uh, page view, is it not? By orders of magnitude by far, yeah. I'm generally like disappointed where I write something
1: where I think, man, this is like the best thing I've ever written. And then it's like, wow, look at that. It's like, nobody's reading it. Come on, you know? So, um, But, uh, hey, that's the quality of the readership, not the quantity that's important. And I generally have come to the point now, Jim, where I'm gauging the success of the post based on the social media response, not just the page view count. I know from the Twitter feed if it's uh, resonating or not. And I say or not because my last one about the uh, PNC Venmo flap is probably the one where I mean, I'm taking grief for this one from a lot of people who are disagreeing with me on this one, but you know, I might be wrong, but hey, it's good. I'm learning. And, uh, you know, what I love is that it generates some discussion. So, that's good.
0: It gives you a chance to really vent and also provide your perspective. And speaking perspective, I think a couple of weeks ago, you did a uh, an article in Forbes on the FinTech winners and losers from 2019. Do you want to talk a little bit about who you thought the winners in the FinTech space were last year? Yeah, will do. I do want to
1: preface this, though, Jim, with a caveat that I totally admit the fact that my perspective in looking at this uh, suffers from two problems or issues. Number one, I'm probably a little bit more American-focused than uh, I should be or could be. And number two, I am definitely taking very much of a banking-centric kind of view versus looking at what's going on in the investment and insurance world. So, with that in mind, I think that you have to say and admit that Goldman Sachs was a huge winner in 2019. Its Marcus, despite the fact that it was reported that it has suffered a little over a billion dollars, about $1.3 billion in loan losses over a roughly three-year period, mind you, not just this year, in its Marcus unit, I don't think that that should detract from the fact that the Marcus deposit-gathering steamrolling has continued into 2019, and especially at a time when so many mid-sized banks and credit unions are struggling to acquire deposits. And here comes Marcus going along and going from, I think it was about $35 billion at the end of 2018 to the last number I saw was about $50 billion at the beginning of December. So that's another $15 billion in deposits gathered in 2019. And then you add on to the Goldman Sachs' success, its partnership with the Apple Card, despite the fact that Apple has done its best to diminish Goldman Sachs's contribution to this by claiming, you know, it's the card, the Apple card without a bank, right? But it has been supposedly the most successful launch of a credit card in the history of credit cards with the last numbers I saw at the end of Q3 were about $10 billion in credit extended to Apple customers. So my
0: hat's off to Goldman Sachs. I think they were definitely one of the, the winners. Well, you know, in, in a marketplace where the key, as we've seen from both a big tech and a financial standpoint, is, number one, can you get trust? Well, Goldman Sachs obviously comes with that. Can you get exposure? Apple card's a great example where Apple is really working very hard at building exposure for the Apple brand but also Goldman Sachs. And the ability to have what I'll call transactional information on the consumer – And the value proposition, the value transfer between Apple and Goldman Sachs is a model that so many financial institutions should look at. And, you know, they don't get mentioned with the big tech firms. They don't get necessarily mentioned with the traditional banking firms. But really, it's a blend of the best of both, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The
1: other thing I'd add into this, Jim, and I think is really important for people to recognize and remember is that they're spending money on good old-fashioned advertising. My estimates, based on some things I've seen made public, was that they spent about $80 million just advertising Marcus in 2017 and double that in 2018. And then I saw a quote from someone at Goldman who said that they will end up having spent about $270 million on its retail businesses in 2019. I don't think that's all marketing and advertising. I think that's all in with, you know, salaries and technology development and all that. But it just goes to show that they're making a big commitment to this. They're putting their money where their mouth is and you too also talk to a lot of fintech startups as I do. And when I start asking about, you know, well, what's your game plan from a marketing perspective? You know, it's always, yeah, well, we're going to rely on word of mouth to begin with. And I don't see traditional advertising being a big part of our our marketing plan. And I tend to just kind of roll my eyes and go, and you got to look at what Goldman Sachs and Marcus is doing. It's the model for how to build out a brand name.
0: Exactly. So what other winners did you see in uh, 2019?
1: So the other one, and this one kind of pains me a bit. Actually, the other two kind of pain me, which is kind of funny. I have to admit Zell is a big winner in 2019. You know, it probably is not a good, you know, comparable situation to a startup fintech in that, you know, it took a floundering consortium of large banks, reformed it within an established enterprise, gave it a new name, recounted all the existing transaction volume as the volume of the new fintech and voila there you go you've got zelle but reality is is that because of their start in being in so many of the large institutions their person-to-person or p2p payment transaction is now well over venmo and square in fact i I think if i got my math right it's more than venmo and square combined s&p global did an analysis recently and uh I counted it up, and uh, Zelle is in 21 of the 27 largest banks in the U.S., and they got two more who will be launching soon. And that doesn't even count big-name midsize banks like Umqua and First Bank in Colorado. So got to give them kudos. They are definitely one of the winners in, in 2019. They are definitely uh, gathering a lot of steam in the person-to-person payment space. I can't say that it's at the expense of Venmo or Square just yet. But, you know, this whole thing that just came up recently with PNC and PNC, you know, ostensibly shutting down access to Plaid, which is what Venmo works with. PNC is basically telling its clients, you know, either switch banks or you switch person to person payment providers. So we'll see how that plays out. But, uh, you know, that could just be more good news for Zelle.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because it was in response to what was going on already in the fintech space. And a lot of the fintech P2P players now are doing a whole lot more. It's made them innovate. So, you know, you see the, the tug of war going on, but it's a great space for it to go on because it's the area that was most at threat from the standpoint of traditional banks. Zelle was certainly a late entrant at best. But they got the banks to put all their money where their mouth was and are promoting it as such. So, you know, it doesn't matter how we do the counting because I think, you know, I you know, I dispute the numbers from a standpoint of being apples to apples. But still, they have certainly recovered a lot of the P2P payments that were going on. And it'll be interesting to see what the response from the fintech space is going to be in 2020. Yeah, I totally agree. Although I will say this, Jim, the numbers I look at, I conducted
1: my own consumer survey at the end of last year, which is how I came up with my estimates. And I have to say that they pretty much validated what Square and Venmo and, and Zelle have been supplying publicly. So I do kind of believe the numbers, although I tend to break out the intra bank numbers from the inter bank numbers. Yeah. Because, yes, you know, if you're just transferring money to yourself, that's not a Zelle transaction or shouldn't be a Zelle transaction. So the other winner that I named was Chime. And again, this kind of pained me because you want to talk about not believing the numbers. I, I don't believe the numbers. Every ninety days, not even ninety days, there's a new press release that Chime is got another million or a million and a half customers uh the last one i saw was early december that put the total at about six and and i should wait i should actually correct myself not customers but accounts yes they said that they had 6.5 million accounts which was up from 5 million in september which was up from 4 million (laughs) in uh june of this year and i think this is an important distinction we got to remind everybody that when chime is announcing its number of accounts the way that they're structured to works is it's a pretty much good bet that anybody who opens up a checking account is also opening up a savings account at chime it's not necessarily automatic it's you know i would put the ratio maybe not at 2 to 1 but pretty damn close to 2 to 1 so again you know they're I think obfuscating the customer numbers when they report accounts because number of customers could be somewhere around half of the number of accounts. But regardless, it just seems like every two months there's some really wild number. And I talked about how I I was able to validate through my own survey, the Zell Square and Venmo numbers, I've not been able to validate the Chime numbers. When I've asked consumers who they have, what fintech companies they have accounts with, my numbers didn't come anywhere close to Chime numbers. But again, I was looking at number of customers, not number of accounts. But regardless, I'm going to take their numbers at their word and have to say that they're a winner for 2019. But I will say this, Jim, uh, and I did publish this a couple uh, weeks ago as well in an article called The Warning Signs Ahead for Chime. As I do look at their customer base, I think it's very heavily skewed towards low and middle income consumers. Nothing wrong with that, except where do you go from here? You know, they're relying very much strictly on interchange fees as a revenue source, That can only go so far over the next couple of years. Interchange rates have to be trending downwards. Uh, And so you get, where does everybody go? They go into lending. And if your customer base is low to middle income consumers, that's going to be a tough base to grow a lending business on. So
0: I I see some warning signs ahead for Chime. So beyond the winners, when you look at some of the fintechs that are out there, and let's not even call them winners or losers, are there any fintechs that are out there that you just really like what problem they're solving or how they're solving it or maybe their their overall model?
1: You know, there are. And it's funny because the ones that I tend to like, and this is probably just, you know, my own bias of, of where I view the whole financial services world, is I think the bigger problems to solve are within the banks than with the consumers. I mean, yes, nothing's perfect at the consumer level for sure. Nobody's got that nailed down. But none of these startups do either. Chime had its own technology problems. All of them seemed – nothing's perfect. The customer experience is never going to be perfect. But I think part of the opportunity is in solving a lot of the problems at the bank level in terms of how they are able to deliver products and services. So, you know, two ones that just come to mind, and I do like the whole as-a-service type of a concept, but companies like StreetShares that are providing lending as a service to banks or um, Harvest Wealth that's providing wealth management services to mid-sized financial institutions as a service, you know, those uh, are the ones I tend to like. I still am a big fan of, of companies like Strategy Core. Which are helping to kind of reinvent the checking account space and really add, you know, helping to accessorize the checking accounts and make it a more valuable product for consumers through their existing financial institutions. So it's companies like that that I think are doing a good job. And as you say, we're, the, they're solving the problems. They're actually not solving directly the consumer problems, they're so helping to solve the bank's problems
0: in being able to serve and provide better products and services to consumers. So along that same line, are there any what I'll call traditional banks or financial institutions that you think have, in 2019, kind of became a winner, that they were doing some of the right things? Tough question for me to answer, because
1: I know there are a bunch. You know, there are a couple that come to mind, and, and and I don't know that I could say that they necessarily – this all happened in 2019 that, you know – because, of course, nothing that they do is going to kind of, you know, take that short a period of time. And in thinking about your question, there's a couple came to mind immediately, and then one said, well, I know that, you know, one of those is not exactly perfect. But there's two that kind of come to mind immediately, one being Alliant – and they're both credit unions, by the way, not banks – but Alliant Credit Union in the Chicago area, who I think has done an amazing job of sort of transforming away from branches to a digital-based financial institution, and a credit union in uh, Boulder, Colorado, Elevations Credit Union, that over the past couple years has you know really embraced Six Sigma and you know the Baldrige approaches and just has done a great job of great service and also rethinking the products and services that they're offering. You know, Jim, just real quickly, it's coming up on five years that I published the book Smarter Bank, and I'm really thinking of kind of reviving that concept of, you know, what in 2020, what does the Smarter Bank look like? And it kind of occurs to me that both of those banks, credit union, sorry, boy, I'm going to get in trouble for that one, huh? Both of those institutions You know, really kind of fit what the model of smarter bank needs to be in 2020 in terms of how they source talent, how they use data and apply analytics, how they think about and deliver the member or customer experience.
0: So that's why those two come to mind. Well, it's interesting because you're really talking about companies that have changed their culture and in the research that we've done for the digital banking report we found that you know culture has obviously been more of a challenge than the technology side of it but that you have very few organizations that I believe, from an outsider's perspective, have embraced the culture of what we'll call the digital financial institution. And you name two. You know, on an ongoing basis, I'll, I'll name BBVA as a, as a company. And they benefit from the fact that they haven't had a banker in charge there for over a decade, which certainly puts them in an advantageous position to not feel and move like a bank. But it's strange that when you look at the big banks in the U.S., and a lot of them try to brag about where they are as digital organizations, ranging from Capital One to Wells, from Chase to Citi, even taking on the next tier being U.S. Bank PNC and uh, now the combination of uh, BB&T and SunTrust, and you go, I'm not nearly as impressed with where they're going. Yes, they do some digital things right, but I don't really see a change in the culture. Do you? Jim, I'm going to take a bit of a contrarian view on this one. First of
1: all, I just want to mention quickly that in another report I did this year around digital transformation, I conducted a survey, mostly mid-sized banks and credit unions, and asked them what some of the barriers to their digital transformation efforts were. And I was very surprised to find that not a majority, nowhere near a majority, mentioned culture as a barrier to their digital transformation efforts. And that kind of went against all these things I read everywhere out there on sites like, you know, digital banking report and, and financial brand and so forth. And so that kind of surprised me. But, you know, here's why I take the contrarian view, Jim, is that if you're, you know how many banks and credit unions all claim to be customer-centric and member-centric and service-oriented and blah, 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 blah. And reality is, Jim, is if your financial institution truly is member-centric or, you know, customer-oriented or service-driven, then adopting new technologies and digitizing or digitalizing Your operations should be part of that culture. It's not a change in culture. You do it because you recognize, man, we we need these technologies to deliver better products and services and experiences to our member or customer base. And so, you know, I don't think that there's the need for cultural change as much as You know, people think that it's needed. And I also think that it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I just look at the own organizations that I have worked for in the past 20, 25 years. Um, and then a couple of really sad things come to mind. It's like, man, that's a really long list of companies. And then I realized it's like, so when I try to decide, like, what's the overriding culture of any of those, you know, firms that I work for? And they're not financial institutions, but so what? None of them are technology. There's no technology in the description of the culture. You know, one company, first word that comes to mind is it was juvenile. You know, another company I worked for comes to mind was professional culture. Another one was, you know, very, um, you know, misalignment. And so the overriding picture of what the culture was, was not digital. That's not a culture. And so I think this whole cultural thing is getting overplayed a little bit, because I think what it really comes down to is strategic change. And the reality that you know, changing direction of the ship, especially the bigger ship you've got, is difficult, not because the culture, but because of the way processes are hard-coded, and very importantly, because of the way rewards and incentives are structured. You mess around with rewards and incentives, and you're messing around with some really big rocks in an organization. And if you want to translate that to be culture, okay, but
0: I don't think that that's how a lot of people think about their company culture. What's interesting is I think you you work with a lot of the credit union space and what we are finding is that the biggest and the smallest think they're more ahead of the game. But I think You know, a lot of it has to do with, you mentioned it, in the small organizations, they're not steering the big ship. They don't have to change culture. Their culture, especially in the credit union space, has always been customer-centric. So that helps a lot because if you understand that, then it's not about technology. It's about serving the customer better. And, oh, by the way, technology may be part of that. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. And as you look to 2020— what are some of the things that you see happening in the banking space that, I'm not going to call it a trend or prediction, but what what are you looking forward to in the next year possibly happening? Let me extend that out,
1: not just to next year, because I don't think things ever happen in just a nice little 12-month time frame kind of thing. And I do think of this as broader than just being a trend or a prediction. but. I think there's a number of issues or debates that the industry is going to have to wrestle with throughout the the next decade, really. I think one of them, I do not think, although we've been debating the future of branches for a while now, I think that's going to really start to come to a bit of a head. And it's not about consumer use or preferences for branches. This is going to become much more of a political fight that, you know, banks and financial institutions that shut down branches in economically disadvantaged areas are going to get a lot of grief for doing so, despite the fact that it might be more economically advantaged for them to do so. I find this to be a weird argument because haven't the proponents of mobile banking been arguing that that's the key to serving underserved consumers for the past 10 years. So wait, is it is it the mobile banking that's going to serve them, or is it the branches that's going to serve them? But I think we're still heading for a new type of fight around branches. I think that's one, and that's sort of the one that will carry over from the previous decade. But the two big ones, I think, that we're really going to wrestle with in the next couple of years is around data and, more broadly speaking, AI and the need for regulation in AI. You see it all the time, the calls that, you know, there's bias in AI and everybody who doesn't like a result that they get from AI claims that there was bias in the AI. What's kind of amazing is that, you know, people are ascribing AI to decisions that were made by not AI technologies. So all of a sudden, everything now is just AI, and anytime you don't like something, it's biased. But I think we're going down a road where not just the assertion of whether something is biased or not, but the ability to do that analysis is going to become very constrained as AI becomes much more assimilated into existing applications and technologies in the banking world, You know, they're not going to be separate chatbots anymore. They'll be part of the contact center systems. They'll be AI that will become part and parcel of loan origination systems and digital banking systems and CRM systems. So the ability to kind of ferret out what was AI and what was not AI in a particular application to determine whether or not there was any kind of bias inherent in it is going to become very difficult. And especially when you consider that what's really driving the the potential bias is not actually the AI technology, but the data that's being fed into it. And so we already have regulations around what data we're able to use that the industry is able to use to make a lot of times of decisions. And so in effect, we're actually regulating bias into the decisions not out of the decisions and the broader issues around data privacy and the use of data are going to be you know very much forefront page one and you know we talk a lot and you and i both talk a lot about the need for personalization and better real-time analytics but the reality is that we may be going down a path where there will be less data available to make those kinds of decisions not more and that's going to become a big issue for the uh, industry And then the last one I throw in here, which I think is a longer-term trend, Jim, that I think the industry, in the U.S. at least, is going to wrestle with is whether or not what we've seen in China with super apps from the WeChat and Alibaba's of the world, which I guess those are the only two in the world, right – Will that come to the U.S.? And interestingly, I, you know, there's folks like Brett King and Richard Turin who will tell you immediately, yes, they are, they're coming. I actually am doing my annual What's Going On in Banking survey as we speak, I'm asking respondents what they think. And so far the running count is about 60% think it won't come to the U.S., 40% think it will. But I think that whether or not that comes to the U.S. will depend a lot on cultural changes within the U.S. to accept that sort of, you know, all-in-one. And remember, this is very much big tech on steroids in some cases. But I think that's going to become a big issue for the industry. Are banks going to just become little pieces of super apps? I don't think, you know, will it be banks who think that they can become the super app? But I think this is going to be You know, representative of potentially huge cultural changes or pressures
0: on cultural changes to see if that kind of stuff is adopted in the U.S. Well, we have run out of time. And as always, it's a conversation that we could have uh, going on for hours. Um, It's always great to talk to you. It's it's good to keep in touch with you almost on a daily basis, one way or the other, either through Twitter or through email or by phone. But how do people get a hold of you or how do people pick up the book you mentioned? Getting in touch, rshevlin,
1: R-S-H-E-V-L-I-N on Twitter. Also, Ron Shevlin at LinkedIn. Please check out the FinTech Snark Tank on Forbes. And you you can get the book anywhere, but that's Amazon called Smarter Bank. But these days, you know, best place to get me is at Forbes on FinTech
0: Snark Tank. Hey, Ron, great to have you on the show. And you have a great holiday as well. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raise a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.